I have to ask with Elizabeth Hess is officially part of the Champagne Showers podcast network. Welcome back to I Have to Ask with Elizabeth Hess. Today's guest is State Senator Scott Bennett. Good morning, Senator. Good morning. You come from a small town, obviously. Walk us through how you went from the small community to college, to law school, to the Illinois legislature. I'm really focusing on the obviously part. I don't know what I... I'm wearing shoes. I know this is a radio show, but I am from a small town. Uh, I grew up in Gibson City, and my uh, family farmed there for a long time, my extended family. My dad uh, was the small-town dentist there. I graduated from high school, had a really great childhood there, where you just know everybody, same kids in your class all the way through school, but certainly did not think I was ready to, to go to a big school uh, or move that far away. So I went to Illinois State University for undergrad in Bloomington, which is about half an hour away. And then I uh, went to the University of Illinois, which is 30 minutes on the other side of Gibson City for law school. So stayed, stayed pretty close to home. But in the process, I started gaining more confidence. You know, even though those are close to uh, my hometown, it was much more diverse than the class of 55, probably, that were my graduating class in, in Gibson City. Started doing some internships in government, uh, living in different places like Washington, D.C., and I think really uh, changed kind of the course of my life. There were a lot of high-profile people that wanted to take over former state Senator Mike Farrick's seat when he became treasurer. Were you just wondering, all right, this may happen, or are you thinking, I have a rewarding job, I'm happy if I stay here? What were you thinking going into this? I had a great job before this. I was a prosecutor with uh, Julie Reitz's office in the Champaign County State Attorney's office, and I uh, was kind of the courtroom lead uh, in my courtroom, and it was a felony courtroom doing uh, murder cases and, and serious felonies. And particularly, I worked a lot with uh, cases where the victims were children who'd been the victims of uh, sexual assault. And I found that um, to be, in many ways, and this sounds strange to say, but one of the more rewarding uh, things that I've ever done. You would, uh, these kids would come in, you can imagine, have no trust in anyone. And people that were supposed to be in a position of trust in their life had done something terrible to them. And you just had to begin kind of building them back up to be confident in you. And uh, it might take months or uh, in some cases uh, up to a year. You'd have them come in every week. You'd play cards. You'd watch movies. You'd do everything but talk about why they're there to, uh, to be there until they trusted you. And then you'd uh, at some point come into court and they'd sit there on that stand and in a room full of strangers call out the person who you could argue ruined their life but in some respects took their life back. Um, and it was a, an incredibly empowering thing. And to be even a small part of that, um, I get kind of goosebumps talking about it now. And so that was a job that was hard to leave. I had cases that I, I didn't want to give to somebody else. I didn't want to see somebody else take that and then trust those kids had built up uh, with me. In fact, I still in this job, uh, there's parades that I still see some of the parents uh, that brought the kids in. And, and, you know, I still worry about those kids and, uh, they'll have you know some issues there they'll deal with the rest of their lives. So it's hard just to put that down. Then Senator Mike Furricks became State Treasurer Mike Furricks. It became a question for me of you know who's going to take that position or who's in a good spot to do it. And I, I thought I was in a good position in that it's a district that isn't uh, one way or the other. Many state rep districts or state senator districts in Illinois are like Chapin Roses, completely Republican, or like the 103rd with Representative Ammons, very, very uh, progressive. Um, but this one was different. It had a college town and then it had about 20 small communities that uh, definitely skewed to the more conservative side of the spectrum. Ferricks walked that line very well. And uh, I thought maybe with my background, I would have a similar ability to try to measure both. Uh, coming from a small town, having a farming family, being a prosecutor uh, appeals to some of the more conservative parts of the district. But I 
um, had also worked for the Democrat National Committee and had uh, was the secretary of my county Democratic Party and had a lot of progressive views. Uh, and so I thought I might be in a good position to try to try to represent one of the more difficult districts in the state. More so than any elected official, I would say everyone, and you're going to roll your eyes when I say this, universally likes you, regardless of political party. You mentioned the diversity of your district. Champaign County has incredibly red parts, but blue parts. Yes. Vermilion County, are there any blue parts? How do you reconcile that and serve all of your constituents when there is a diverse viewpoint out That's there? That's a great question and something I thought about a lot during the town hall we saw earlier this week uh, with Congressman Davis. You, you, you find very little middle ground, right? And, and what's interesting in my district, it's not geographically that large. Chapin Rose's district is all or parts of 10 counties, and I only have two. But because Champaign-Urbana and Danville are larger communities, I have the same number of people, but just a smaller geographic area. Nevertheless, the exact same news story that I will talk to people about in Champaign in the morning, that um, people say, you know, can you believe this in a negative way? I will then go to Danville in the afternoon and get, can you believe this in a very positive way? Like, we've, you know, we finally got this uh, this done. It's been really interesting. If you look at my social media feed, and I have friends, obviously, from both sides, it's a world gone mad. I mean, it's just, you, you have no, there's no kind of consistency uh, throughout the day. Um, when you see the, the people that you're, you share a Facebook feed with, um, how they view the exact same news story very, very differently. I would say, and I, I chuckle when you say, you know, universally popular because, you know, I still get the calls and people stop me and tell you things that they don't like about the job you're doing. And that's that's to be expected. This is not a job you take if you want everyone to like you. Mike Furks, uh, you know, was helpful when I first I was working, helping knocking doors from one day and I got a really negative. And he said, look, you know, you're going to get a, a diverse response, but you know, you have to kind of just see where your district is leaning uh, one way or the other and, and try to represent them and understand that on any controversial issue, almost half the district is going to be unhappy with you. And what I do not want to do is be the politician that just kind of waters themselves down so much that they don't take any positions. Um, but instead, uh, one, you recognize that there is value, there is merit in someone else's opinion that you don't agree with. Um, they have a right to their opinion. What I always say is I want to meet with everybody and ha- let them try to convince me their point of view is correct. Um, if they fail, and I probably have a, a, a strong belief in my my view as well, if they fail, then I'm going to vote how I think is best, but I then owe it to them to go back and explain why I voted that way. So we do a lot of town halls. I do a lot of meetings. I call everybody that calls me uh, and asks for a call back. So on, on issues like guns, for example, very controversial, very, both sides feel that issue very strongly. Um, I'm not going to make everybody happy, uh, but what you can you can try to do is at least hear that person out, try to hear uh, of you that you don't have, and explain at the end of the day why you voted how you did, um, and that's all you can do. Do you remember we were at a shredding event once, and somebody came up to you and started complaining that you keep putting Michael Madigan as Speaker of the House, stop voting for him, and you calmly explained to that gentleman that you are in the Senate and he is the leader of the House and that you don't get to make him the leader. How often do you have to do that and how do you so calmly explain the difference? Well, I imagine it's a very hard time to be in the House right now as a downstate Democrat because you uh, are asked that question a lot. People are really focused. I know our our News Gazette, our local newspaper here, I don't think there's an editorial they they write that they don't mention the speaker by name. What I was trying to explain to people is you're exactly correct. I serve in the Senate. You have a lot more freedom. I have now been in the Senate for uh, five years, and I have never spoken to Speaker Mike Madigan, never said a word to him. 
it surprises a lot of people. And I, they say, well, you know, we, we know you take his orders. And I said, I've never said hello to the man. We are in different parts of the building. He, we don't work on the same issues. We were in different chambers. Um, I don't think that, you know, people that think that every problem in the state can be ascribed to one person are never going to say, oh, that's okay, then you're okay. So the fact is, our problems are bigger than that. And so when people say there's these pension problems and you Democrats caused it all, I mean, I was at a forum yesterday with a local Republican representative where he was going on about the pension problems and he wanted to say, well, all the problems he mentioned where it started, one was about 20 years later than it really started. But even the period that he was pointing out, we had a Republican governor and a Republican state Senate. But I don't even know if that's the place to start. You can certainly see where uh, did we go wrong and how do we fix it. But if your answer is, I didn't like the job that a Democrat did in 1985, so therefore you need to vote Republicans in 2019, that's pretty flawed logic in my mind. You, you should look at the actual candidates, see what they're doing. And for one, let's think about uh, both Republican and Democratic parties of the 1980s are almost rec- unrecognizable to the parties that we have today. You look at Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton and the same positions where they were the leaders of the party in that era now are being used to deride them and the party. Uh, and that's uh, true of Reagan as well. I think, I don't know that I'm always that calm. I'm an emotional person and I, I tend to, if you know, if, if someone comes strong at me, sometimes uh, I, I want to push back. But uh, you also recognize that if you can just have a rational, calm conversation about all these things and you know, actually talk about some facts, you may not change their mind altogether, but you're giving them something else they hadn't really thought about. And oftentimes people come from, you know, I talk about the social media feed. I think I have a rare one that has both sides. Some people will have all kind of left-wing um, news sites and friends, and some, of course, have the more conservative ones. But that they think all that is new. That's the only perspective they've even considered. It's interesting when you put any new facts, kind of, uh, one, you have to assume they're going to accept those facts, right? No one... We're at a point in our history where it's hard to find any source that's universally accepted right. uh, by both. But if you can put some new facts in their debate, they may not say like, oh, you're totally right. But I'm going to guess as they're driving home, it'll, it'll at least they'll wonder, why is that? Let me check that out. There was a lot of mudslinging around the budgetary stalemate, and Mike Madigan got a lot of the blame for that. What would you say were the two biggest sticking points that both sides couldn't agree on? If you're going to try to reach a resolution with a group that disagrees, you have to be meeting and talking, and they weren't. There was a strange, my first ever meeting with uh, Bruce Rauner, um, he was doing this, I don't know who put him up to it because he clearly did not enjoy it, uh, but he invited all the Democratic senators and reps to meet, have breakfast with him in the governor's mansion. And so I was probably on the job three, four days, and it's a super big deal. I get this call from a staffer that says they want to have you there. And so I'm sitting by you know, Bruce Rauner. He's eating Cheerios. There's probably eight, seven or eight downstate senators, Democratic senators. And one of the Democrats says, so we didn't really know where, what to expect from Bruce Rauner. He made some speeches, you know, the campaign was over. People didn't know how much that's lip service and how much of it's really his feeling. And a downstate senator said, can you, you know, drop this rhetoric you have toward the unions because honestly you know the this senator was saying that uh, Bruce Rauner had run had won his district and he said so my district is with you on some of these things I'm going to try to find some ways that we can agree on some some issues because but I can't even be in a photo op with you because right now my union friends think that you're after their livelihood and so if you'll do that if you'll explain some areas we can find common ground then then I'm, I'm happy to work with you and, and Bruce Rauner says, oh, like he looks completely confused. And he says, I'm not going to work with you. And then he does this. You can't see it on the radio, of course, but he does this like kind of like haughty points, his fingers. Yeah, I, I don't deal with any of you. I'm going to deal with 
the speaker and and the Senate president. And of course, that offends everybody at the table, you know, because even I'm three days on the job and I'm like, even I could see, well, there's the chair of this committee and that committee. Like if you're hoping to, to reach across the aisle, you're going to have to pick off some people. And I would think downstate Democrats would be a place to start. But it was interesting because then a few months later, the governor's complaining that um, he can't get any votes on his issues. And um, all anyone wants to do is stick with the Senate president or the, or the Speaker of the House. And I'm thinking, well, you yourself said that you wouldn't deal with this individual. You want to deal with the leaders. And, you know, we were offended for a while. But the more I think about it is like he was that's his that was his understanding of the world. You know, he when he bought a company, I talked to the CEO. He didn't talk to the factory workers. He didn't talk to the the middle level managers. He was used to talking to only the top. And, and so that's kind of his thinking. All right. And he never changed that. It never, by the way, changed it. But what happened instead was right from the get go, he burned so many bridges with both the speaker and the Senate president. You know, they found their meetings weren't productive and then they stopped calling them. I would argue there's some blame on both sides of that because, you know, we would say, well, what's I at least want to see the letters where you're asking, you know, for our leaders, we want to see you're asking for these meetings and being rebuffed. It became harder every month to go home and tell these social service agencies and universities, you know, hey, we're going we're gonna to get a resolution when I also knew that it had been 10 months since the leadership had met. And so that at that point, you realize like it's going to have to basically be the next election or close to it. Um, now, luckily, it, it wasn't that long because I think it was 10 Republicans in the House and one Republican senator um, crossed over and voted on a budget in 2017 that finally funded universities and social service agencies and then in the same process raised the income tax level to almost where it had been two years before. Ultimately, it came to the point where I just there wasn't a lot of tomorrows left for some of our universities. UVI would have been okay, but would have ha- suffered some more rankings problems. But the Easterns, the Westerns, the other schools uh, were really in, in, in a tight spot as were social service agencies, many of them closed. Um, and I just never got the sense that the people who should care did. Uh, and so what you ended up seeing was rank and file members uh, just started meeting on their own on the budget. And um, it's something that I thought was really encouraging. And we've tried to continue doing. We recognize there needs to be, it can't have be 59 separate voices out there saying, setting an agenda right in the Senate. Yeah. But you also shouldn't just sit there and wait for the leadership that you elect to get it all done. Each of us was elected, uh, you know, and I think by people who are um, increasingly impatient with the, well, I hope the Senate president gets it done, or I hope the Republican leader of the Senate works on this. Um, the question was, well, well, yeah, but what are you doing? And so I think um, you started to see that move a little bit in the last couple of years. Thank you for explaining that. It's fascinating. I don't think a lot of us knew what was happening behind the scenes. The only thing more controversial, I would say, than gun control is probably abortion. And Illinois had some movement uh, in case the federal government decides about Roe v. Wade to kind of protect abortion rights. Was that down party lines? I know I'm not going to get you to get too deep into the abortion discussion. It was largely partisan, yeah. What was interesting about that bill was that there were two bills initially. One bill that had um, that had to do with abortion this year. One had to do with notification of, of parents. And one had to do with how late in the term they could perform the procedure. And both of them, I think they were put forward as a conversation starter. But I don't know how much interest there was in the whole General Assembly in seeing it pass. But certainly they wanted to start talking more about, about those issues. And that was in January. Then by March or early April, you start seeing some states, Missouri and Alabama and Georgia, pushing some some really strong legislation that restricted a woman's right to have that procedure. 
and you start kind of think, sit hearing from your constituents is, are we going to be next on this? And, or what's going to happen if, uh, I think it was Alabama that they were very openly saying, this is geared to sending it back to the Supreme Court. We hope this is challenged. We're hoping that, you know, we see federal legislation change. And so the thought was, okay, well, in Illinois, if they do overturn Roe v. Wade, there wasn't much on the books that actually for state law that talked about it. Um, instead, in fact, as you can imagine, the legislature in the in the late '60s, early '70s was much more conservative on this issue. And then Roe v. Wade comes down, and then well, we don't have to do it now. It's federal law; they don't have to really change it. So instead, what this did with the with the Reproductive Health Act that we passed in the last few days of the session tried to codify in law all the things that we've has been discussed in cases and, and courts have said here's all the things all the times it can apply, um, but there really wasn't a place in statute or at least not um, comprehensively that talked about it. So we tried to put all of those rulings in one comprehensive bill, took out the version that was there in the, in the late 70s, and basically just made sure that uh, Illinois residents uh, will continue to have a right, women particularly, to make that decision uh, as we go forward. And, you know, there's been a lot of pushback for that because those that are, are anti-abortion or anti-choice still, I think, are th- thinking about the bill that was talked about in January that would have made the term later. Um, but largely, the bill is still about viability. It's still, the question is, um, not when a heartbeat or not when a, you know some kind of mental activity is detected, but when is that fetus able to live on its own? When is it viable outside of, of uh, the mother? And until that time, it's a part of the mother's body, which means it's, it's her decision um, what she wants to do. That has not changed. But ultimately, um, I think it did a lot in a very uncertain time. Um, to give women in the state of Illinois a lot more confidence that they'll have control of their bodies on healthcare decisions. As we open up the new legislative session, I know common sense gun reform is going to be taken up. Tell me the the top thing that you are focusing on as you come into the new legislative session. Two main issues. Uh, the one I'm going to focus on mostly this year is something that it's not new. Many people have worked on it and not gotten much to show for it, is the role of the state with uh, children with developmental disabilities. So we have a really terrible system in our state. And so we see this a lot more with autism, right? With more and more people being uh, diagnosed with autism, this has come out. But this could be true of a lot of different either disorders or diagnoses. And how it works is when you're in school, if you're in public school, your child can get special education right throughout the day. In fact, they're able to stay in school past 18 till I think 22. But what we're seeing is an absolute epidemic of, okay, so what happens after 22? Uh, and I've worked a lot with different groups here in just in our district that come and say, it is a weekly crisis where we get uh, a, a parent who's getting near the age of 22. In this state, you get on what's called a puns list. And eventually they do this weird lottery where they pull people off. And then they say, you can live in a group home. We don't do institutions in the state of Illinois in terms of new ones. There's some that they um, have not closed. uh, But most people go, they can't live on their own, are in some kind of hybrid. Like DSC here in our community does some group homes uh, where you might you might not need 24-hour care. You're able to work. You're able to, but maybe you need some help with preparation of meals, or maybe you need some in the house to help you to deal with it. And so maybe they'll have four or five people in a home that are able to live more productive lives, much much more cheaply than we had done in the past in the kind of institutional settings. But more importantly, with a much higher quality of life. I mean, all of us I think want some of that independence. 
And maybe your abilities don't allow you to drive or don't allow you to live completely on your own, but some do. I mean, many of these do have complete spectrums that allow that. But what we're finding, though, is until someone gets off that puns list and gets a chance to live in those homes, they have to live at home. And so say now you're a mother or a father that is uh, 45, 50 years of age. You're in your prime earning years. Now your child is aged out of the school system but has not yet been placed. But your child can't stay home all day. So what do you do with them? And so what we're finding is parents who are quitting their jobs to stay at home all day with their children until their placement is received. And, you know, that makes no sense from a state's perspective. Obviously, that's very draining on the family life. But it's also now you're taking that income out, which means, oh, by the way, they're not paying taxes during that time. If you really want to look at it from a coldly economic point of view. But more importantly, um, it's just an awful quality of life for some of these families because families that have children with disabilities, it's such a stressful time. Often these families fall apart. So it's often a divorced family or a single parent in the house at this point. And so you have these moms that look 20 years older than they are because they're lifting their children in and out of of bathtubs or they're, you know, um, just under constant stress. There was a a situation uh, recently where uh, one of the moms complained that for her child who needs a routine, every day needs to be Christmas. And so you're like, oh, that sounds kind of nice. Like, oh, really? Is it every single day of your life? You play Christmas songs, you make Christmas cookies, you have to get out the Christmas stuff to decorate your home. And then by the child, by the he's not a child anymore, he's in his 30s. When the child goes to bed, you have to put it all away so you can get all back out again the next day. And if you don't do it, my child punch, he's six foot three, punches holes in the drywall. That's an absolute nightmare scenario. And these moms talk about their murder-suicide plans in the worst-case scenarios where they absolutely cannot, they, they don't want to go on living, but they also can in no way walk away from that child, right, which is making their life so difficult and, and not have someone take care of them. So their plan is, well, I've got to, you know, take both of us out of the situation. Our state has absolutely failed these families when you were talking about that. But certainly there are ways to give these families more more predictability and more consistency um, with what to expect. Because these families, you know, where the child's maybe 15 or 16, and they see, okay, I've only got seven more years until they're out of school. What will life be like for my child after that? And and by the way, we're not talking about a year till they're off the waiting list. We're talking about 20, 30 years. I mean, this is kind of heavy. I apologize. But it, it's nice when you have, you know, upbeat bills to talk about. But at the same time... Something I learned last year with the coal ash bill, which is a bill that we said, you know, we need to talk about it. But we, a lot of it was me talking to the advocates in the community, environmental advocates saying, but I don't want you, your expectations to be too high because it's not going to pass this year. We need to start the conversation. We need to start informing people what coal ash is, but we simply are not going to be able to, to, to beat the energy industry in year one. But we did. Uh, and in part, it was just the constant drumbeat, kept working on it. We brought advocates in to really work on their legislators. And that has kind of helped me recognize that you shouldn't just assume these issues are too big to take on. It, it may not happen the first year, but you, you have to start the conversation. And then the thought is, if we get it organized in the right way, and then a progressive tax, for example, is passed in 2020, there's about $3.5 billion coming in the state and revenue that we didn't have before. We spend a lot of time comparing ourselves to other states on jobs and 100 different statistics, but we don't very often on the social service side, and I'd like us to do that as well. On a lighter note, before I let you go, 
Your kids are very musical. Do they get that from you? The moves from you, your wife? My wife is very musical. She uh, travels the country with new kids on the block. And this is 2019 when I say that. I feel like there's a good chance our marriage will last is if my wife didn't walk away from her boy band in the 90s when everyone, no one liked her group anymore and she stuck with them, she's a loyal person. So I respect that and I thought she would be a good life partner. Okay, but wait, stop, and name three of them at least. Go ahead. I name can them. name all of them. Donnie, Jordan. I mean, let's have to think of my sheets. Uh, we have New Kids in the Black sheets and pillows. Jordan, Donnie, John, Danny. Oh, no. Right now she's screaming at the radio. Um, there's another one. Jordan, uh, the two brothers. Oh, Joey McIntyre. How could I forget? And then, of course, my wife has my... Young children indoctrinated. So for a while, my daughter could only sleep to the sounds of Joy McIntyre. So I got to listen to that a lot. Um, we're going to edit all this out, I hope. But so she loves music, terrible music, obviously, but music. And the kids have uh, have 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 got that uh, from her. Yeah, you're right. They they play piano, they sing, they dance. This this morning, my son made me tape him while he did a new dance for me, uh, getting ready for school. Okay, I mean that's not that's not me, but it does make the house very joyous, so I enjoy it. Can you name a couple of Insync or Backstreet Boys? Well, Insync, Justin Timberlake was the the the, the main one. Backstreet Boys, oh, Nick Carter, everybody's favorite Nick Carter. I'm acting a little bit like I know less because I'm a 42-year-old man. And this State is senator, by the way. Yeah, it's a shame. But when I was dating my wife in particular, she, she loves all boy bands. And I did see some of these guys in concert. And I will tell you, the reason I know Nick Carter is because I saw him with my wife in Chicago in one tour. And then at the end of the year, we were living in Washington. She wanted to go again. And so, again, we were dating, so I'm trying to impress her. I went. And they clearly had the same wardrobe, but Nick had gained like a significant amount of weight. And they, he was wearing the same leather pants and the camera angles were not flattering. And I, I remember we were just watching on the jumbo trial. I was like, that does not look good. The fact that I knew that their, his weight had fluctuated because I'd seen multiple shows of the same tour. That was a pretty cold look in the mirror, honestly, uh, at, at, at what I was willing to do to, uh, to get Stacy to marry me. But uh, it paid off, I guess. And I had, once, once we got married, I haven't had to go. She has plenty of friends that she'll take to concerts instead that are less whiny than me about it. Final question I have to ask. Is State Senate the only public office you will seek, or are you looking for uh, another office in the future? It's funny. I, I have no interest in what I think most people consider higher office. You know, if you, people talk about, oh, next year one for statewide or next year one for Congress, I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I enjoy staying local. Um, and so, uh, you know, at some point I want to go back to the courthouse. I think that's where, I mean, my love is. There's some things you could run for that would keep you close to home. That's, I guess, of interest to me. But I mean, I, I have, I'm very happy with the job I have. It allows me to do, you know, like we talked about before, there's some real social change and some policy changes, that stuff I care about. And my district is a size that allows me to actually get to know a lot of the people. So you kind of get more involved in people's lives than you could if you were uh, running for statewide or things like that. Plus, I get to be home almost every night, which is important to me and my family. So I'm pretty happy with, with how things are currently, and I'm, certainly I'll be running for re-election in 2020. State Senator Scott Bennett, thank you so much for your time today. It was a pleasure. Thank you. 